0: Scripture this morning is from the 12th chapter of Luke. A man in the crowd said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, man, who made me an arbiter or a judge over you? Beware of all kinds of greed, for life does not consist in possessions. And then he went on to tell them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And the man said, What shall I do? For I have no place to store my crops. I know what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger barns and store my surplus grain in them. And then I will say to myself, You have grain for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But that very night, God came to the man and said, you fool, for this very night your life is demanded of you, and those things that you have prepared for yourself, who will get them? So it will be with all those who have stored up things for themselves but are not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Several years ago, uh, California Bay Area pastor John Ortberg took this ancient parable of Jesus from Luke 12 and put it in more modern terms, and he described a man uh, in Silicon Valley who had uh, had a wonderful startup, and his startup business grew, and he poured himself into it. In fact, even to uh, ignoring uh, his wife and his children, he poured so much of himself into it, and then he acquired another firm, and, and he became more and more successful in ...began to entertain thoughts that if he could become successful enough and have a big enough kill... ...and he could get out and walk away from the business altogether. Well, one day his management team, including his COO, came to him and they saw an opportunity. One more acquisition. One more deal. If they could get this deal, they could corner that part of the market. And then his COO said, and then we can walk away from the game. We could sell it. We could go to the Florida or the Bahamas and retire. Well, this appeared to the man and appealed to the man. and He began to pour himself into that acquisition. And sure enough, they had that acquisition. And sure enough, it was beginning to return large investment. And he would uh, watch the returns and he would watch its progress, even uh, taking the work home with him on the computer to see how it was going and, and to look for just the exact time to sell and get out and retire. One night it was time for bed and his wife said to him, I'm going to bed. And she went upstairs, but he stayed and looked at the computer, studied a few more things. But for two hours he didn't come back up to bed. So she got up and went to check on him. And there he was, you know, slumped over the computer. And she thought, ah, just like a kid with a new toy playing so hard, he fell asleep with it. And she went and shook his shoulder and said, hey, it's, it's time to go to bed. But he didn't respond. And soon she realized he was dead. Three days later, they had a big funeral and all sorts of business and community leaders in the Bay Area showed up at the funeral and people who eulogized him, eulogized him as a real innovator, a market leader. And several of them talked about how successful he was. He would have loved what they said about him. But that night when the funeral was over and his body had been put into the ground, in the dust, the dirt above where his grave was, an angel of the Lord came and wrote in the dirt one simple word, which was God's verdict on his life. And the word that the angel wrote on behalf of God was fool. Fool. Just like the parable of Luke 12, it raises a question for us what is it that makes someone a fool? What is it that turns them into a fool? And I'm sure there are all sorts of angles into this parable because stories are like that. But I want to take one particular angle uh, in this morning and see if you'll uh, just walk into the story with me from this angle. And the angle is simply this, that the man was a fool because he acted on the basis of uncertainty. My crops are good now. How do I know what they'll be in the future? And so I'm going to build bigger barns and store more grain for myself. Never mind the clear law in, in the scriptures that you're not only to uh, leave parts of your field so that the poor can walk through them and get food for themselves, but, but you're called on when you have an abundance to share with others. But he didn't do this because, well, you just never know what next year's crop will be. And we all un- understand uncertainty. I mean, anybody watch the market this week, you know? Uh, down 200, back up 200, uh, down, back up again, down 170 on Friday. Just, you know, you get vertigo just watching the thing. Or, or maybe we turned our attention not to New York and to Wall Street. Maybe we turned our attention to Nigeria and watched terrorists massacre a number of people. Or we switched it to France. And watch the terrorist acts there. I mean, we do live in uncertain times. There's no question about that. But do we let uncertainty fuel our action? Because often out of uncertainty, we will be tempted, just like the brothers that came, just like the brother that came to Jesus. We'll be tempted to see everyone else in the world as not an ally or a friend or a partner in what we're trying to do together. We'll begin to see them as competition. So they're two brothers. They have the same blood. They share the same family line. And one of them comes to Jesus and says, I want you to take your authority, your power, your energy, your time, and make my brother share the stuff with me. Two brothers have been turned into strangers and and enemies uh, as they live in competition one with another. Did you ever read that great book uh, written years ago, Siblings Without Rivalry? It's a great book on, on parenting and, and, and the author was talking about the time that she had a, a couple of her children in the backyard and she playfully tossed a piece of ice to one of the children. So the other child wanted ice. Well, then the first child wanted more ice. So the other child wanted that much and more. And pretty soon they were turning blue and freezing and in pain but demanding more ice. Nonetheless, trying to outdo the other, sometimes the competition uh, helps skews the way we see the world and those who really are family, those who really could be partners in our venture, we turn in to enemies and, and strangers. And so competition is one of the things I think Jesus worries about in this parable that uncertainty can drive us toward. And the other one, Jesus is very clear to not when he first answers a brother's question, says, basically, who made me the judge? And then secondly, he says, and beware of greed. Because sometimes when times are uncertain and we don't know what next year's crop will be like, we'll be, tended, we'll be tempted to hoard this year's crop and hold on to it uh, as tightly as we can. And it again makes us competitors. It it, it, it starts a violence where people we begin to view other people and other situations not with grace and generosity, but with suspicion. Ellie Vizel. I spent uh, a time in a Nazi concentration camp and survived, and he told, that one, he told the story that one of the things the Nazis would do for fun is that when they were uh, transporting train, loads, train car loads of Jews from one place to another they would, uh, who were starving, they would take some bread and throw it on the train and watch everybody dive and fight for it. And Wiesel talks about the one experience uh, that stands in his mind where there's a, a, a scrum for the bread. And, and there are two people at the bottom closest to the bread. One is an older man and one is a much stronger young man, about 15 years old. And the 15-year-old uh, uh, sees the old man has got it in his possession. So he begins to strangle the older man to take the bread from him. And he's about taking the life from the older man. And then the older man looks at the younger man and they realize the older man is the father and the younger man is his son. And with his last dying breath, the older man says to the younger man, the stronger 15 year old and said, son, I was trying to get the bread for you. Uncertainty, competition and greed always leaves us viewing the world in a skewed manner and and uh, leads just basically into a cycle that can't help but end in destruction i know y'all are tired of hearing about herod maybe even reading about herod but but let me give you one more thing on herod herod was a man who was paranoid and acted out of uncertainty He was a little bit like scarlet o'hara one time he uh they tried to assassinate him when he was a governor so when he became king it was kind of like with god as my witness this will never happen again set up his whole life to be secure set up uh um uh avenues to amass wealth and power and and brutally put down opposition and saw everyone as an enemy, even his own family. He died a terrible, lonely death and predictably... His empire, his kingdoms, his palaces all crumbled because the way of uncertainty that leads to competition and greed is always a path that goes to destruction. Now, let me add a footnote, though, real quick. I'm not saying that possessions are a bad thing. I'm not saying that money is a bad thing. I'm reminded of Tevye. Remember Fiddler on the Roof, musical? And Tevye is saying to God, said uh, that there are some Jews that say money is a curse. And he said, well, God, if it's a curse, then I want you to smite me. And smite me real hard and don't lift that curse until I die. Well, I think money can only be a curse when we use the money and the possessions as a hedge. Use it to stand against uncertainty rather than to use our faith and trust in God and one another. Jesus says an amazing thing on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, You know, God knows what you need. Don't worry about it. But the interesting thing is he says that, assuming that because they're a community, they will share and help each other. That speech doesn't work in a world where everybody sees everybody else as competition. Because then no one is going to share. There is enough food. There is enough clothing for everyone. If those with extra share with those who don't. Jesus understands this economy on the Sermon on the Mount. He's not saying that God is going to just rain down food and clothing from heaven. God's already done that. It's a matter of what we do with it. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. But when we start and we yield to uncertainty and insecurity. It leads us on a bad path. So. It's pretty obvious by now, what do wise people do? Wise people act out of certainty. Wise people are certain. I would say of two things. Number one is that provision comes basically from God. That no matter how hard they work or how lucky they've been, whatever they have is really a, a product of what God has given them. And the interesting detail in the parable that rarely gets pointed out is this. It says the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. It doesn't say this guy was a brilliant farmer. This guy, it doesn't say this guy came up with a really new, profound way to raise his crops. It says he had a good year, he had a real good year through no fault of his own, and the the ground gave it to him. And it's a way of reminding us that what we have we may think is largely due to our brilliance or our strategy or our abilities, but in large part says the scripture. It is due to God. So I think the wise person, first of all, understands that provision comes first from God. Now, we have to work with God. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the lilies of the field. And then he goes on to the birds of the air. And he said, the birds of the air gather what God has left for them. So there is there's some work, but there's no question about who the source is and where things come from. That's the first certainty. The second certainty that the parable makes clear, especially at the end, is this wise people. Act out of certainty of death. They know one day they won't be here to use this stuff. And they know they can't take the stuff with them. Do you remember Bernie Siegel? Going back in time some in his his series on PBS. And and Bernie Siegel said, you know, all my years, um, uh," he said, I've done the research and I've watched it. And I want to tell you that through all the years that I've been working in this field, the mortality rate has remained absolutely constant at 100% said everybody dies everybody he said joggers die vegetarians die non-smokers die he said i'm just telling you this said so on occasion you can turn off the alarm and sleep late and occasionally go have an ice cream cone but the sense was i mean no matter what kind of care we put into it eventually we all meet the same end here's another way to think of it john ortberg uh talks about it in in a book. He talks about a friend of his who is a psychologist now in Southern California. He grew up in Southern California. His grandparents were in the Midwest in in, uh, Illinois. And uh, he would go and to visit his grandmother for two weeks every summer, and they would play Monopoly. But he was terrible at it, and his grandmother would always beat him, and she'd always say at the the same thing at the end of the game. Johnny, one day you're going to learn how to play this game. Well, Johnny liked the feel of the money. He liked looking at the stack of the money. So when he passed Go, he collected another $200 and just never did anything with it. His grandmother tried to tell him that's not how you play. Well, one day when he was back home in the Los Angeles area, a new kid moved in next door, also 9 or 10 years old, and they started playing Monopoly after school a lot of days. And he said, I finally, John finally got it. He said, I made a all-out effort at acquisition and realized that acquisition and domination was the name of the game. He said, I couldn't wait till the next summer to go up and play my grandmother again. And he said, and I will remember that moment just like it was yesterday. It was at Marvin Gardens. He said, I brought my grandmother to her knees. He said, my grandmother is a strong woman. She was a single mother. She raised my father and two other children. He said, but I broke her right there. He said, it was the happiest day of my life. But he said, my grandmother wasn't through with me. She had one more lesson lesson to teach me. And she took her apron and she swept all the tokens, the utilities, the cash, the real estate, swept it all off the board. And she said to me now, Johnny. It all goes back in the box for somebody else to use next time. And he said, I've realized growing up that's a metaphor for life. That at one point, it all goes back in the box. You're jarging, You have a heart attack. It all goes back in the box. You're driving. Someone runs a red light. It can all go back in the box. You're in the doctor's office. You get the diagnosis. And it all goes back in the box. And you can't take it. With you. Remember that old Seinfeld routine on, on uh, boxes? I love it. Seinfeld says, you know, what does life boil down to? But one thing, movement. We're such a mobile society. We're always on the move. And because we're always on the move, we're always looking for boxes. You know, we go to the back of the grocery store to see if there are any boxes. Even if we don't drink, we go by the liquor store, see if they have boxes. We look at work to see if there are any boxes we can bring home. We're always looking for boxes for that next big move. In fact, we get so obsessed with it that we're sometimes sitting at a funeral and we look at the front and we go, wow, that's a nice box. (laughs) That's a really big box. Look at the handles on that box. I wonder how I can get a box like that. And he says, what is death? But the last move that is so big that all your friends need to show up and help you with it. But we all make that move. And then what? See, part of the reason the fool is a fool is because he never thinks past building the bigger barn. He never asks the question, what's next? Where does this all go and where did it all come from? But wise people know that one day it all goes back in the box. So while they have it, they try to live with it in such a way that it will be used, it will be shared with others. I read uh, several years ago about a surprising guy, a philanthropist, and he gave $600 million to charity. And this was like 20 years ago, that was a lot of money. I guess it still is today. Um, But they asked him, the reporter asked him and said, you know, tell me about how you did it. And his response was one sentence. I thought it was amazing. He said, nobody can wear two pairs of shoes at the same time. Just like Matt and his stuffed animals. I mean, you know, we, we can't hoard and hold everything. And so he began to share more of it reminds me of another old story it's probably not true it's about a man who is dying he's really in the last days if not moments of his life he's upstairs in bed allowed to die at home he's very weak but but he manages to get the strength to sit up in bed because he smelled something chocolate chip cookies And the smell was coming from downstairs. So somehow he rolled out of bed without breaking anything and began to slide down the stairs. Slide down the stairs and then he crawled over to the kitchen counter and he began to follow the scent and put his hands up on the counter when all of a sudden, whack! His hand was slapped. He was startled to turn around and look and his wife said to him, don't eat those, they're for your funeral. Well, as John Ortberg once said, that raises a really important question that we all need to answer. Who owns the cookies? The cookies that we have. Where do they come from? Who are they for? And I think the wise person understands that God has given us the cookies and has given us the joy and benefit of eating some. At this time while we live, But I think the same God also invites us to let others take a bite as well.